full circle, yes, we rotate 360 degrees, high, high, 360 degrees, high, high, 306, 306, 360 degrees, high, high. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Broadcasting from KPFA and Huchin occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as the East Bay. On tonight's show, we'll hear from local poets who are all writing a different world and way of being into existence. Achi Obejas, Mimi Tempest, and Darius Simpson, as well as include poems not only from these three, but also Amani Cezanne. That's tonight on Full Circle. I'm your host, Sentient Shiloh B. from Huchin Occupied Ohlone Territory, also known to settlers as Fruitvale in Oakland. Grab your tea or evening beverage, get comfy, light a candle, and set your intention as I transport you to our virtual Zoom kitchen conversations here on KPFA. Welcome back to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. I want to give a special shout out to Group 46. Hey! Tonight, we discuss poetry's role in revolution with local Bay Area poets. Listen in to performances from Litquake's Out Loud programs, Three Voices, Three Worlds, and Revolution Poeticized. Stay tuned as we talk about the power of poetry, its place in revolution, and discuss Audre Lorde's essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury. I know that is all the things for one hour. And to get us started, a poem from Achio Bejas called Boomerang. Boomerang, the namesake of her bilingual book in English and then in Spanish. There are three poems in the book that are called Boomerang, and this is the third one. We have polished a boomerang to clip a hummingbird. We have polished a boomerang. This is what it feels like, what it feels like. This is what we know it feels like to clip a hummingbird because we clipped ourselves first. This is what we know it's like to strike because we struck ourselves first. This is what it feels like to lie on our side, to suck a few drops of nectar off our lips. This is what it feels like not to drown. This is what it feels like when a hummingbird has froth on its beak. This is what it feels like when we gurgle or spit blood. This is what it feels like to be trapped in a room, in a panic, in a rush. This is what to do. Turn the lights off, cover the glass, do not use a net. Come find us in the dark and scoop us with your hands. Boomerang. Hemos afilado une boomerang para cegar a une colibrí. Hemos afilado une boomerang. Este es le que se siente, le que se siente. Este es le que sabemos que se siente cuando se ciega a une colibrí porque nos hemos cegado primero. Este es le que sabemos que es golpear porque nos golpeamos a nosotros mismos primero. Esa es la que se siente al acostarse de lado para chupar unas cuantas gotas de néctar de nuestros labios. 
Esto es lo que se siente al no ahogarse. Esto es lo que se siente cuando una colibrí tiene espuma en el pico. Esto es lo que se siente cuando gorgoteamos o escupimos sangre. Esto es lo que se siente al estar atrapada en una habitación en pánico, en apuro. Esto es lo que hay que hacer. Apagar las luces, cubrir los cristales, no usar una red. Ven a buscarnos en la oscuridad y recógenos en tus manos. Come find us in the dark and scoop us with your hands. That's straight from Achio Bejas's poem, Boomerang, from her book by the same title. Hope that tea, coffee, adult beverage is filled up as you listen in to my conversation with the writer, translator, mother, lesbian, friend, Havana-born, and Bay Area poet, Achio Bejas. My question is about your book specifically, trying to make non-binary gender, especially with the Spanish language. <laughs> that just seems incredibly radical and revolutionary to me. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you came to that idea and how it was to do it. I mean, there is inclusive language in Spanish and the E that subs the A and the O for the gendered words is certainly not my invention. It's, it's been out there for a while. It's become in some ways a response to the X because the X in Latinx is very much a product of uh, U.S. Latinos. It, the X is unpronounceable in Spanish. There's been a pushback from Latin America and from Spanish dominant Latines in the U.S., who want a word that everybody can use. There's been more and more sort of experimentation around, you know, how do we do this? How do we get away from this inherent binary that's embedded in all romance languages? This person, non-gendered, is sitting at the feminine table, drinking their masculine coffee, spreading the feminized butter on the masculine bread with their masculine knife while waiting for their feminine pastry. And the gender isn't utilitarian. It's not like it's even attached to, you know, functionality. The gender is very divorced from functionality. Clitoris is masculine. Explain that one. And, and you know, and in Cuba too, you know, la pinga is also feminine. What is the point of having gender? It's, it doesn't have any kind of use. All it seems to do is remind us of this division. Yes. So what I ended up doing was going through the text, degendering all of it. You know, with the exceptions of those that didn't have an actually divide. Comigo, the word for with me, it sounds masculine because of the O, but there is no comiga. Once I did that, I had another big problem, which is that I realized that gender was actually an inherent part of the story for some of these particular poems. The piece about Ana Mendieta, Ana Mendieta was a young, incredibly radical feminist artist whose entry into the art world was fraught precisely because she was a woman, more so because she was a woman of color. The, the resentments, the jealousies, the not taken seriously were not because the work wasn't bold and interesting and well-founded and researched and conceptualized in brilliant ways. It was because she was a woman. Once I degendered her, I also was erasing her. Mm. I didn't want to do that. So I went back and the whole poem isn't regendered, just her in the piece. Ana Mendieta is the president of Coca-Cola and dresses in yellow, a mother 
of millions, an international pop star rolling by the riverside covered in spit and feathers. Ana Mendieta is the US Senator from Florida, the governor of New Hampshire, four feet, 10 inches seared into wood, traced with blood formed from mud and grass and gunpowder. She leans on the bar counter, a mentirita in her hand. Ana Mendieta is the Grand Duchess of Luxembourg a prestigious professor of international law at the Geneva School of Diplomacy and International Relations. Ana Mendieta is a shadow play of light in the cornfields of Iowa, a mound of earth outside Havana, cave drawings. She's the mayor of Wichita, the tender-hearted sibling of the late dictator, a glamorous fashion model, welfare recipient, emergency case in the emergency room, a soldier, dentist, and historian, the host of a daily talk show on Telemundo who gulps down a milky black cow every day before taking calls. Ana Mendieta is the intellectual author of Miami's resurgence, the evil genius behind the bombing of a plane that killed every member of the national fencing team and the man who ripped out his lover's guts when she moaned the name of another. Ana Mendieta is a power hitter, MVP and six-time All-Star celebrating at a gay B&B &B on Duval Street with a chocolate slam and a tray of cocaine. Ana Mendieta is the president of Coca-Cola and a double agent. She invented the sitcom, the telephone, birthed Amazon, came over with 14,000 kids and got deported with 2,021 others, mostly murderers. Ana Mendieta fears that if she weren't an artist, she'd be devoted to a life of crime. Ana Mendieta is subject and object. She's overwhelmed by feelings of being cast out of the womb, from the island, from exile. Ana Mendieta is the target of racism and a particularly fierce misogyny. She has a wicked cackle, a cruel flutter of hands. She swallows a dark and dirty, an eye of the storm, a float. Ana Mendieta is the goddamn president of Cola Coca, and she's both gleeful and embarrassed by the millions she earns, but also keen on what all that money can do. She's on the outside looking in, and so in with the in crowd. Ana Mendieta is alone. She pushes and presses her face against the glass until there's a tiny hairline fracture that snakes back and forth and back and forth, and the glass separates so she can pop each piece with her fingers. Ana Mendieta is the youngest of all, the last to open her eyes when Earth was created. She's the feminine ideal, the masculine ideal, the non-binary ideal, and inspires lust and fruitfulness. She loves handheld fans and mirrors and is constantly dipping her fingers in honey jars. Ana Mendieta loses interest quickly. She's a peacock, a sack of bones, a woman dozing on the roof of a deli, 33 stories down. And then there was another poem that mentions Hemingway and my mother. We aspire to a place where these things are, that our constructs are in fact no longer there, but the world we live in actually still has those things. And I couldn't step into the linguistic experiment without feeling that that bit of intellectualism was erasing a very important political aspect of the story. There's the intention, then there's the impact, then there's the truth, then there's the, the historical legacy, then the, it's right. like it's all swimming within that current cauldron. 
We're back here on Full Circle on 94.1 FM KPFA and KPFA.org. We just heard a bit from my conversation with Achio Bejas about her bilingual poetry book. And later, we'll hear more from her on poetry's role in revolution and how she actually met Audre Lorde in person. Don't forget to check out kpfaapprentice.org at the end of the show to find out more about her, the book, and Beacon Press. And next up, I share a compilation of poems live from Litquake Out Loud, curated by Imani Cezanne, called Revolution Poeticized. Ten poets in a seance playing Russian roulette, and my genius don't feel like dying quietly today. I pray in tsunamis, riding moonwade waves for the sake of this universe's inconsistency parade around as drunken fool in the corner and gaslight everyone's imagination see the audacity for anyone to say they know me today must have the foresight to meet me before me every day i wake up watch my former self steal my heart away from my mother's wildest dreams they keep asking me to tell my story i'm too busy creating the world so i'm gonna start with some objective facts banana is a terrible artificial flavor it's okay to shoot back at cops. I'm not an advocate for violence, but for peace. Violence is houseless evictions during fire season. Violence is terms houseless eviction and food waste. Violence is eight-figure budgets for KKK unions. You have to say it three times before it sticks. Whoever invented banana flavoring hates us. Banana flavor tastes nothing like bananas. Annually, U.S. companies discard literal tons of food. When I say it's okay, maybe I mean necessary. Maybe I mean we've tried everything else. Maybe it's time we buck up and buck back. There are enough structures to house every human. Captain Planet has beef with the U.S. military. A few people have decided the color of the sky. Even less have decided the flavor of the ocean. Schools are closing due to poison water fountains. Prisons remain open despite hurricane evacuations. Prisons remain open despite smoke in the vents. Prisons remain open despite an airborne pandemic. Public schools close in the Midwest when it's cold. New prisons generate revenue for downtown suits. New schools don't produce free labor forces. A student asks too many questions of the whip. A prisoner can't call home for a guardian. With history books like this, who needs a pledge? If you do the math, you'll find a gun in your hand. If you do the math, you'll end up on a watch list. If you do the math, you become a flight risk. Kwame Ture is my favorite poet. If we love our people, we'll organize. If we are tired of this we'll organize. If we want uncontaminated oxygen, we'll organize. My parents want a revolution, but not a revolutionary son. Obama was the most effective war criminal to date. I'd rather a white revolutionary than a black oppressor. What we believe is a result of our understanding of history. What we believe means very little if we don't act on it. What we believe might be what's keeping us in chains. I believe in self-defense and liberated zones. I believe in above ground decolonization. I believe in avoiding enemy lines at all costs. I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. Call no dab during a pandemic. Here we go. No fist bumps. No palm slap fade to finger grip while your other hand wraps round your partner from round the way. No partners from round the way. No chilling, no cooling, 
booling, no bicking back, no being boo, no pulling up, rolling up, no passing blunts or balls or shooting baskets, no Sunday fish fry at Big Mama's, no Sunday fish fry, no Big Mama, no church, no home going, no repass, no God has no mercy on no black folk with insufficient funds, no pots, nowhere to no good reason to spend no money on no Negroes with no health care. Ain't no way no virus not gonna stop through the hood first. No big deal. No need to panic. No time to panic. No time off work. No work. No government assistance. No reason no unemployment should pay you more than no damn job. No one to call for help. Ain't no good gonna come from nobody with no badge. No way. No cops means no cops no matter whose auntie she look like. Ain't no limit to what they won't lie. Wouldn't be no reason for all this here death if ain't they ain't want no one to die. I said ain't no virus not gonna stop through the hood first and they say ain't no reason not to take no test except ain't no tests around here and no such thing as no free test over there no shoes no test no shirt no test no mask no test no id no test no address no test no way to know what you got till it got you and we're back just like that mimi tempest said she prays in tsunamis and Darius Simpson knows that there are enough structures to house all humans. And that if we love our people, we will organize. And Imani Cezanne reminds us that there is no way to know what you got till it got you. All poems were recorded live at Yerba Buena Gardens as part of the Litquake Out Loud programming, Revolution Poeticized. After the event, I spoke with poet, writer, educator, performer, and member of People's Programs, Darius Simpson. He believes in the disillusion of empire and the total liberation of all oppressed people by any means available. Listen in to our virtual sit down. I know you said that Kwame Ture is your favorite poet and I'm wondering if you wanna speak about him a little bit and or any other mentors. Wow, so yes, Kwame Ture is a revolutionary uh, Pan-Africanist formerly known as Stokely Carmichael, credited with coining the term black power there's so much to say. People should should listen to him. I think, you know, is not a spoken word artist in any stretch of the word. Doesn't have any published poems that I'm aware of. But so much of what he does on a stage and the ways that he draws connections between the condition and its implications between the people and their history, there's poetics to that. Um, in ways that are not to amp up the truth, but to really highlight it. And there's so many examples through his speeches, through his writing, but it makes the learning entertaining and it makes the learning accessible and interesting. And by, by way of making those connections in the way that he writes and performs, which is to say just speaks, it makes the listener and the audience member a part of the process. Right now, I'm actually really fascinated and interested in Amiri Baraka, like autobiographical understanding of, of just his life and the ways that he has, has lived in all the places he's been, how he went to Cuba and got cussed out essentially and how that was a form of his radicalization. It was the, the folks in Cuba we're saying just the responsibility of an artist to be a revolutionary and to reflect, you know, revolution and liberation and, and the conditions of oppressed people in their art, which is not something that he was doing or was interested in. And so I was like, wow. And so now I want to know just like what that trajectory was like. So right now I'm reading a collection of uh, social essays between 1960 and 65 by him. And I just have a stack of books on my table, all, all kinds of things that I'm like digging into. I'm, I want to reread Stokely Speaks. You know, we're never really done with books. Because it goes back into the next question I have, which is poetry's role in the revolution mm. and what is the revolution? Totally. For sure. 
And so I don't think that there is a, the revolution necessarily. I think that we say the revolution, it's like the revolution. It puts it off, right? And it puts it off at a distance, both uh, from, the, from the present to the past and from the present to the future. And so we think about revolution as an event, a particular thing, rather than as a process that can be or, or can't be successful, uh, a process that we have to get involved in the, in the mechanics of, of making right now you know poetry's role in revolution changes as a revolutionary process changes right now there's a, a lack of revolutionary consciousness even and so i think the role of the art now is, is making folks aware of our condition this unreality as the only reality so such that you say that we are not free and folks have a have trouble with that and making people aware of what's possible and so for me what that looks like i think i've made a transition from 2014 to now We've seen a lot of art that does two things, particularly from, from Black poets or poetry that illuminates the violence and the atrocities that uh, the genocide that Black people have been subject to in this country and others. There's also art that, that has gone to say, you know, these, these other worlds and imagining new possibilities in a fantastical way. And so, which, all, which is also important and necessary, but not a lot of, you know, flipping violence on its head and showing the mortality of capitalism, the mortality of pigs, the mortality of you know, politicians, all these people who are involved in, in murder and genocide right now, be complicit in it. For me, I'm focused on flipping the violence on its head. And so really just to say revolutionary violence. And I think that that's power that art has, poetry has specifically. Poetry's role in revolution, I think, is two things. One, to illuminate people to their condition, to reflect their condition, to, to make connections across the diaspora, across uh, the United States and across histories, across lines, and to also inspire folks into action. And in some ways, what types of futures are possible, what types of revolutionary existences and times are, are, are possible. So right now, folks may not be organized. You know, we don't have strings of community gardens. That is something that we can reflect on to, to times and places that that has existed. So thank you for that. You know, he shot at the police, right? You know, he was not up to date on his YMCA membership. You know, he did not mentor at-risk teenagers after school. You know, his license was suspended and his taillights shattered. You know, he wasn't wearing a lick of white when they found him, had his pants sagging, had his shirt untucked, had his lips unbuckled, dripping southern twang all on the concrete. It sounded like a mouthful of honeybees was stuck at the top of his throat. You know, he was black, like, Black, black, like dark roast coffee beans, black, like ashy knuckles cradling a bottle of wild Irish rose on the sidewalk, black, like, like scarecrow perched just outside the liquor store doorway, black, like purple tar gums and gold teeth, like paper bag hands and menthol breath, like empty black and mild wrappers in the glove compartment. I heard it wasn't even blood where they left him. I heard it was just stains of red Kool-Aid. I heard it was just puddles of strawberry pop fizz, you know, sugar would have got him if 12 didn't. You know his teeth were little yellowing daggers. You know he was a dragon, returned fire, went out in a puff of smoke. You know he was a weapon, didn't beg for his life or call for his mother or his partner. You know that nigga went out on his feet, brought a gun to a gunfight, brought mutiny to a slave ship at the Atlantic shoreline. You know that nigga was a nigga. And not like, ha ha nigga, not like next Democratic presidential nominee nigga, not like run fast, jump high nigga, like worm food covered in tree bark. 
like lead water clogging an artery, like dead leaves stuck in a gutter, like storm the arsenal and shoot the masters. One of those give me liberty or give me blood types. That nigga had the nerve to want freedom, then go do something about it and still, still what y'all gonna march for him? What would Malcolm X's old zoot suit think? What would a white woman's rendition of Dr. King think? What would the noose say? What if they see us mourning and think we just as dangerous as him? What if I say liberation and they think I mean I hate America? What if I hate America but don't know no other homeland? And what if America hates me back and does something about it but doesn't leave me time to shoot first. Buenas noches, my listeners. This is Senti and Shiloh, and we're back with Full Circle here on 94.1 FM, KPFA, and kpfa.org. I'm featuring radical Bay Area poets tonight on Full Circle. You just heard a bit of my conversation with our second poet, Darius Simpson, asking, will people march for people who resist? for people who stand up to power, for people who question authority, or for people who don't fit the respectability narrative. Who do you march for, listeners? This is an invitation to reflect on how you are showing up. My third and final interview is with California daughter, multidisciplinary artist, and poet, Mimi Tempest. Her work focuses on disrupting stereotypical narratives of Black and queer people. She's also amazing to talk to. Listen in. Thank you. I really just want to get some local voices of folks who are kind of writing reality and other ways of being into existence. And I would love to focus on your poetry. Sounds wonderful. To start off with, um, I read that you said if you weren't doing art, you would be dying. And I'm wondering how poetry rolls into that. So for me, poetry is the opportunity to create the world. Poetry is the means to facilitate a new way of understanding the self and then understanding the systems that need to be transformed. Yeah, it's a way of creating instead of just labeling. What is your origin story of becoming a poet? <laughs> I like to think everyone's born a poet, but I've, you know, I've always been a writer since I was a child, but I have a, a roundabout way of how I be, became comfortable enough to express my poetry in front of like a large audience. I come from the Los Angeles underground, DIY punks, uh, drag queens, artists, the DJs, the promoters, everyone that you could think of on the outskirts of society, you know, night rats. I wasn't brave enough to do poetry. I had to create uh, Mimi Tempest as like a moniker in order to perform. I still have this thing for being on stage and expressing myself in front of people. But it wasn't until I went to Mills College and I've been learning under Trong Tran where I rediscovered a need to express myself creatively through poetry. I've always been a poet, but I started off as an MC and a performer. And then I've transitioned all of that energy, alchemized it in the past three years to what I'm doing now. So I'm thinking about how, you know, alternate societies or, or communities that are not necessarily represented, you're already doing that with punk and underground. Wondering how your poetry relates to that. I wasn't initiated with the luxury of the academy. 
I think there's a certain type of training that a lot of academics come in with. I came in swinging from the, from the mud. So that's how that correlates. I mean, now I'm a part of the academy. I'm at Santa Cruz uh, getting my PhD, but I wouldn't say that my origin or how I was initiated into this work comes from that. For sure. And related to that, how do you navigate echo chamber of like who comes to poetry readings and who comes to the academy when you're in that role? Because you're like in multiple roles, right? At multiple times. And if we really want to describe the possibility of a new way of being, how do you manage that in the, with the echo chamber so that we can actually make that happen? Yeah, I don't think I've cracked that code yet. <laughs> that's, that's part of the work that I'm currently doing and, and currently figuring out that I do try to reinforce within myself is to show up authentically, no matter who the audience is. If Mimi Tempest showed up, that's for me, that's all that matters. And the echo chambers is going to do what it's designed to do. Do you have any kind of ritual that you do before you read helps you stay grounded regardless of the context within which you have arrived? You know, it's interesting. I feel like I'm in um, a strange metamorphosis, like a growing pain, you know, like a baby when they're, they're teething. Mm. I feel like I'm in that point right now, just on like a, a personal and a creative level. So my ritual right now is just like in transition. I'm one year post my first book and I'm already into my second collection. And I, there's a lot of things that I'm mediating between those two projects and the grounding right now is a little unstable, but I'm fighting my way out of it. Yeah, I'm sure COVID has had like an impact on that on all of us too, right? Yeah. <laughs> How can people find your book? Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll send you the link, but it's a co-conspirator press. Right now it's uh, sold out, which is a good thing and bad thing. So uh, in November, The Monumental Misrememberings, which is my first book, will right. go into a reprint and folks could buy it there. Denial. At the gynecologist's office, she says, there's a poison circulating through my blood, says, it, says it's chasing the embryonic version of my existence like a minotaur in a labyrinth. I walk home below dirty rainbows, whirling in the dead end of my womanhood. Sleep for endless hours, dreaming blue shaded parables. Every version of myself meets for the seance. Argues over the, over the provisions of my failures and successes. Maiden, mother, crone, sits arrogantly against the reality of my fresh disposition. Each pointing her finger at the other, unable to admit shame over my new set of consequences. Stage two, anger. He's to blame. The nigga who poisoned me and the other one who borrowed my innocence, traded it for a bump of cocaine, and, and the other one who mirrored me as victim to our addictions, and the other one who groped me at the after hours, and the other one who was too afraid to love me out loud, and the other one who was looking for his mother in my pussy, and the other one who deemed my body a treasure chest on Pleasure Island. See, the nigga who needs to read this isn't even apt to be on this page. My whole life I've been talking to dirty walls. I've, I'd smear my period in blood, inscribe free for fun, but dying was the only thing I agreed upon when I came into this cosmic plane. This revolving door of contradictions, this ongoing diatribe of avoiding all the ways this life can violently end. I, I know I'm on my way out. I exited stage left before my first cue, act one, scene one, enter into an empty and noiseless stage. From the wings we hear prolonged sobs echoing into a chamber of infinity and doubt Mimi, a 29-year-old fat black and queer poet, enters grimly on stage. She plops her body at the center and she locks into the fetal position. Mimi continues. 
I will no longer keep this rage locked inside my belly. My life is now a monologue of deep mourning. And what happens when the cage is sick of coveting me as catatonic? And what happens when I get bold enough to stick my head above the clouds and admit that a sunny day costs a dollar too many? And what happens when I tell him my body doesn't work? I guess I'll never be the object that God designed me to be blackout. See, the niggas who need to read this branded me a nigga-making machine. They cry revolution. And then they go play cog in the utility belt of men that gang bang Gaia. They parade around as moral men. Fathers to generations of goddesses downgraded to sex slaves boys disguised as warriors who placate their failed gender with their minuscule <laughs> poets and artists brooding through their cities held prisoner to their transient thoughts they plant polluted seeds populating thirsty minds and they laugh at the parable of consent they deem it a, a wayward idiom for the very power they claim they want they never have man <laughs> My is metastasized into a doorway of consecutive non-believers. She finds truth in a psyche that's lost its grip. Her name is none. Her language is barely. The hours wedge, the gag, their semen sliding into two-day-old panties. Eat droplet seeps into a stain of thorns and petals, bushed at the opening of her now pursed lips. The moisture is fixed, mumbles only at the crossing of legs, only at the entrance of his name. Ozymandias, conquering time with the fever snatching, grains of sand filtering upwards, inhaling storms, eddies of indecision to give birth, bubbling, berating, in fantasies, friction and creating life, mothering to dictate if the life is worth live, avoiding duration, avoiding living, avoiding temptation, avoiding, see, they always think climax is going to be the next word. <laughs> you believe hard thinking did too little for my heart. My she clamps down, permeates until sacred. She bites until bruised, sacrifices and then leeches off the excess. She writes letters to strangers, bleeds for the full moon every month. She Venus fly traps men who smile pearls in bright rooms. She kisses foreign men in dark alleyways. She's determined to deepen my madness while making a bastard out of every man's strongest soldier. Stage three, bargaining. A message from the ancestors, this is not your fault. But it is your responsibility to heal through. Let the tears you cry sting like acid. Instead, I popped a tab of acid on Khalifa's island. I heard the sirens cry from the riverbanks. My friend, she heard them too. She was more eager than me to dive into a divine death. I convinced her that drowning was the event that was already taking place. Convinced her that they weren't beckoning for her to join them. Convinced her to hear their lullabies offer as reconciliation. Stage four, depression. I escaped from Los Angeles with the skeleton in my suitcase. It crawled out of its confinement, pulled down my blouse, sucked greedily on my areolas and cried unforgiven before it slept, made a scene about being wrapped in dirty sheets. It claimed I was harboring a desire to destroy Father Time. Stage five acceptance. At the grocery store, an elderly black woman, she was plum sweet. She looked deep in the barrel of my eyes and said, sadness is a towering fiend, said he makes claim in the hollowing of your stomach, feeds you breadcrumbs and then testifies that you've been fed pie. She gave me her pen and paper, suggested I make a list of the very desire I was shopping for, suggested that the key to getting over oneself is to revel in the reality of being misunderstood. She told me, your tears ain't nothing new. She suggested I continue writing into an untapped possibility. Did you all catch that? Mimi started off with the understanding that poetry is the opportunity to create the world. And remember, her book, The Monumental Misrememberings, is now in reprint. It's November. So be sure to go over to Co-Conspirators Press and snatch up your copy stat. Audre Lorde's essay, Poetry is Not a Luxury, was the inspiration for tonight's show. And so I will share my mashup of all three artists, Mimi Tempest, Achio Bejas, and Darius Simpson, responding to her words.
In the forefront of our move toward change, there is only poetry to hint at possibility made real. For there are no new ideas, there are only new ways of making them felt, of examining what those ideas feel like being lived on a Sunday morning at 7 a.m., after brunch, during wild lovemaking, making war, giving birth, mourning our dead, while we suffer the old longings, battle the old warnings, and fear of being silent and impotent and alone while we taste new possibilities and strengths. Mm -hmm. What you said when we first started talking about how it makes the world possible, I would love to hear about the the world you're trying to make possible with your poetry. Mm. You know, my mentor Trong Tran says, we don't wake up and and say we're gonna write an angry poem we wake up we go out into the world and it just so happens that um, the world infringes upon us so often that when it's time to hit the page eventually the rage comes out i mean the perfect world i'd put down the fight i want to go to the sequoias and and write about trees every day and study the roots and how the trees communicate with each other and the birds that live in the branches and that would that would be the world that I fight for or that you know every black child wakes up and, and, and gets to be whoever it is that they want to be without the world constantly infringing its, itself upon you that's the ideal world I mean an alternative answer is that everyone have uh, the strength the grace the knowledge and the community to fight through the struggle one year, I decided that we needed to hear these poets live. My then-girlfriend and I put together a reading series, and we brought to Chicago Adrian Rich, Audre Lorde, Olga Brumis, and uh, Judy Grand. They're all poets had a, a really impactful effect on me. You know, it was also really important to me to meet those women, actually spend time with them, and to talk poetry with them. Also, when we first met, she kind of clasped my hand and she said, I hear you're Cuban. And I said, yeah. And she said, have you been to Cuba yet? And I said, no, I haven't. And she said, well, then you must go. You must go. You must go because you will find part of yourself there. And I thought, whoa, it propelled me in some ways to to reconsider that in ways that I hadn't thought about before. I can't believe that Audre Lorde clasped your hand. (laughs) She clasped my hand. I think one of the things that's really interesting that's happening right now is that there is a a real fervor for poetry. It's the poetry of, you know, younger people, and it's the poetry of change, and it's the poetry of movement. The poetry that's selling is primarily by African-American poets, and the people who are reading it are primarily African-Americans. And I thought, that is absolutely fantastic. It's people who are using words to name their possibility. Words are not just words. When you name something, it becomes a reality in a particular way. It becomes a possibility. It becomes a clarion call. One of the great things about poetry is that brutally, savagely honest in a way that plain speech cannot be. It can move you, it can take you places, hitting your nerves also very differently. I know that it does something to your brain. It's like a way of knowing only poetry can do. Yeah. Poetry, I've always felt like belonged to me first. And this book and my chapbook before it were complete publishing accidents. Even though I write poetry and even though I'm very engaged in poetry, I I never really thought about publishing poetry. I mean, so the book was kind of an accident. And then 
it got like bigger than I ever thought it would. They decided to start a new imprint. This was the first book in the imprint. And the audience never played in my mind very much until I realized, oh my God, this poetry book is going out into the same world where Natalie Diaz publishes poetry and Jericho Brown publishes poetry and Carolyn Forche publishes poetry. They became sort of my audience in the sense that I, I wanted to be worthy of standing in their company, of having my book next to theirs on the bookshelf. Well, I love this. So the imprint is called Raised Voices, yeah? Yes. And it says, a poetry series established in 2021 to raise marginalized voices and perspectives, to publish poems that affirm progressive values and are accessible to a wide readership, and to celebrate poetry's ability to access truth in a way that no other form can. Yeah, actually, to be honest with you, I, when it when it first happened, I don't think I even registered it. It thrills me, you know. Sure. It really does. It really it really thrills me. Yeah, I think two things about that. One is when she says that there there are only new ways of making felt. That makes me think about what I was saying about just uh, the way that the role doesn't necessarily change, but what it, what it looks like. And so always the role is eliminating the, the conditions. Always the role is inspiring people to action. Always the role is showing. And reflecting on and imagining and bringing that imagination to to the art of what's possible, uh, but it looks different. And so we get to look back at what has been created, what has been imagined, what has been materialized, and also look at the impact of it, the way it was or wasn't co-opted by the state. You know, they took or tried to take Emory Douglas's art. Uh, what I'm also thinking about when she says uh, there are no new ideas. When you said earlier about the imagination, I think that's what I was getting at too. We, as artists, as poets. We tend to spend a lot of time in the imagination and in the imaginary. But what Emory Douglas also makes clear too, and uh, a lot of his writing just about cultural revolution and about artists' role in revolution is uh, the action or what's important. And so when, when she says there's no new ideas, I think it's also the responsibility of, of artists. We have to study and we have to know, but also understanding what, what does revolution mean? What have been revolutions? What is my specific politic and ideology that I'm aligning with, uh, what particular ideology am I aligning with and how is it being reflected? Because that's that's the real test of revolution. We should really spend a lot more time deciding what, what exactly are our goals and then organizing for them and then just letting our art reflect that process rather than seeing the, the work in the classroom and through education and arts as our work. How do you manage the echo chamber and navigating that so that we can create and imagine and then act on these new possibilities or these new ways of being mm -hmm. a practice of empathy and understanding which sounds very vague but i understand myself and my own uh, process as i don't know as just a, a constantly a, a dynamic a dynamic process and so understanding that also any uh, student any person human has the capacity uh, for that change too in the same way that i have the capacity for for change and honestly i struggle more with my understanding of that i'm a human too yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I avoid the echo chamber. I think I get caught up in it often. Luckily, I think actually continually using words that mean things and so using revolutionary language, the necessity of using uh, revolutionary language, I think that that is super helpful. It's helpful because I'm constantly having to define things. What's helpful is just being around people who are committed to, to humanness and to being honest and to not, you know, performing revolution. The, the reality is that the work is most important, that the people are most important. And so putting the people, putting humanity, putting the service and the work first is super helpful because there, there's, there isn't that much to talk about really unless we're reflecting on the action. That being a reality and that being a practice is helpful. 
because yeah, you can to an echo chamber because you're saying words that don't mean things. Whereas if I'm looking at a program and I'm trying to uh, understand the effectiveness of this program or the way it fits into a larger politic or a larger goal, there's there's no way to echo because we're constantly changing and moving. You know what I'm saying? And so I think that that makes it harder to, to get into you know spaces where you're just saying the same thing over and over again. So it's like reflecting with the goal of trying to evolve and, mm-hmm. and make it more effective is yes. one of the ways that you can use to not get stuck in that echo chamber. Yeah. And understanding that that process and change is the only way of life and only way of life giving that echo chamber thing is oppressive. Right. It's like if you can't grow, if you're constantly just staying in the same place or hearing the same thing over and over again. That's super dope. Hey, hey, I hope you are witnessing and welcoming these worthwhile and life-sustaining words. We began our last segment with Mimi Tempest talking about the world she fights for where everyone has the strength, the grace, the knowledge, and the community to fight through the struggle and a way of being without the world constantly infringing on how you be, especially for black children. And then Achi Obejas talked about how words are not just words, that they become reality, name possibility, and are brutally honest in a way that is unique to poetry and only poetry. And Darius Simpson closed it out by talking about always the role of art and poetry in particular is to illuminate the conditions to inspire people to action, to show up, reflect, and imagine what is possible and to do something about it. Because remember, using words that mean things is crucial. We are coming to an end in our show. And before we listen to the two final poems that I will be sharing with you tonight, I want you to hear the final thoughts and advice from our three poets, Mimi Tempest, Achi Obejas, and Darius Simpson. So I'm really thinking about how the action and the collaboration and the the coalition of co-conspirators, like what does that look like? How do we navigate that? And how do we love each other in the process? When we think about coalition, think about co-conspirators, I think white folks spend a lot of time going into the black spaces, but don't spend a lot of time going to their community, going to their family, you know, going to their people. If we think about coalitions, we think about uh, love. It's, it's all it's all revolution. One of the folks that I met through people's programs, she says that you do not organize for my liberation, you do not love me. And so it's like, when you think about love, that too is revolutionary. And to organize for liberation, to organize my people, to build a revolutionary coalition, all those goals and intentions are different, but the same at the same time, right? And so all of our enemies are the same, but what we might do, where we might go, might look different, but we can align behind the goal. So we think about coalitions. I, don't, I can't build coalition with any white folks who have not identified enemies that are the same as mine. And that's, that's across any line. If capitalism, colonialism, the United States government, the president, if those are not your enemies, then we, we cannot work together. Um, it, it just won't work. So I think about co- coalitions as a, essential, but it has to be revolutionary. Any like closing thoughts that you want our audience to know? Any advice you want to give them, whether they're listening as a poet or as a student or as a revolutionary? I'll tap in with your, your local revolutionary organization. There's fires to start. There's histories to study and our oppressors, the people who are benefiting from capitalism, colonialism, neo-colonialism, they are human as well. I believe that we will win and we will indeed. Really is if there's anything else you would like our audience to hear or know or 
you want to leave them with? Uh, anything I want to leave that I want people to leave with? Yeah, or anything you want our audience to know about, about Mimi Tempest or about those three poems or about how the revolution can be poeticized. I mean, rest, rest, rest and reflect. That's the best you can do for yourself and to the movement. And know that this is not a perfect thing. It's a process. Well, I think the revolution is a better world. I don't think change comes quickly enough. You know, you have to keep trying, even though in your lifetime, it's not going to happen. You still have to, however incrementally, add to the march, the progress, the process. I think changing the world is also a lot about repairing the world. To look forward, you have to look back a little bit and see where we need to patch things up, where we need to rethink things so we don't keep making the same mistakes. I think poetry is reflective, and I think poetry is a siren call, and I think poetry is a lot of things that a revolution needs. You know, you also have to think about what you're going to do. What do you? What are you going to do? What is it that you envision? You don't like this. Okay, let's tear it down. But then, what then? What then? What do we build? What are we striving for? What is the goal here? Poetry helps that process, that thinking process, and that envisioning process. Possibilities, I think, seem more real in poetry. It names things. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. Welcome back. And remember, listeners, it's not a perfect thing. It's a process, like Mimi said. And Achi noted the importance of repairing and reflecting and the power of poetry to name things. With Darius talking about how organizing is love. As I said before, we're coming to the end of the show, and it's all good as you can listen to the full uncut interviews and poems on our SoundCloud playlist after this show. Don't forget to check us out at kpfaapprentice.org for photos and links to these revolutionary poets. And before I say goodnight, I'm going to leave you with two more poems, Achi Obehas's poem March and Mimi Tempest's poem Basquiat's Revenge. This last piece is called The March. I'm about to step outside. I'm about to step outside to the elements and my anticipation is a long inhalation that covers the world upon release. This is the beginning of a movement based on facts and not on sentiment or pronouncements, though both sentiment and pronouncements are useful and worthy. As I begin to lift my left foot, my sartorius muscle allows my knee to move up towards my body. I am joined by others, however they can join with me, others who have suffered and are not afraid to continue suffering. What we seek is a new majority rooted in justice for all whose conscience is committed to seizing wrongs and doing right. What we want is nothing about us without us. What we want is for each individual to find their own identity and expect that society will respect them. We shift our weight, unlock our knees, arrange our bodies in the best way for each of us. For an instant, most of us are standing on one foot. We're not in a hurry. We are not dreaming. We are ready to give up everything, even our lives. We shall do it without violence because that is our conviction. What we want is freedom. What we want is the power to determine our destiny. As my left foot comes down, it is coordinated with my right, and they match the equivalent movement of those who have joined me and with whom I am joining. We are firmly rooted. Whenever possible, we let our limbs swing in a natural motion and we keep our heads 
facing forward. What we want is the complete elimination of military forces, not just from this or that territory, but from every corner, every outburst on Earth. What we want is full and meaningful employment. What we want is decent and safe housing. What we want is an education that teaches us our true histories and their consequences on the present. As each of us lifts our right foot or makes the equivalent movement to ambulate, we are now a perfectly synchronized force, even in our differences and occasional disorder. What we want is an immediate stop to state brutality and the assassination of black people and native people and disabled people and queer people and trans people and women and children and mothers and fathers who can only do so much because they are shackled by the very state that seeks to kill them for having foolishly believed they were free. What we want are the doors flung open to Folsom, Rikers, Guantanamo, San Quentin, San Juan de Lurigancho, ADX Supermax, La Sabaneta, Camp 22, Paulsmore. It would be fatal to overlook the urgency of the moment. As we advance, we are thunderous thrum. Some of us will run under the rain in Seattle and toward traffic to block Lakeshore Drive in Chicago. Others will block Wall Street. More will storm the Port of Oakland. There will be one lonely soul in snowy Bethel, Alaska and clusters in Little Rock and sweltering Ferguson and Tallahassee and Flagstaff, Baltimore, Detroit, Honolulu, Boise and ancient Salem, Wichita and Northampton, Oklahoma City and Spearfish, South Dakota. Nerve and muscle adapt to the rhythmic stimulus of our own noise, the noise we make together. It is true that when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one person to connect to another and another and another in order to defend our equality, our difference, our dependence on one another, then. Hi, y'all. Uh, this is called Basquiat's Revenge. Uh, I'm just a fat black with a few good words. A court jester at best, every black poet waits in line for the 15 minutes, regurgitating the last one sonnet into a lackluster spinoff. Every black man's poem reads, I was killed today, I will be killed again tomorrow. America, you wish to consume or wear or f or frame my flesh. America, you were never America in the first place. Let us swallow our blood until the bruising bears resemblance of a broken chain. I am never at your mercy. See, they calculate every move, hovering to see if the academy gonna take the soul out of me as if I didn't sell it already in a Los Angeles basement in exchange for a simple day. 2016 got a few secrets on me. The devil got even more. I am imperfect in the most perfect ways. No idealism penetrates the parallel nature of my pen. I see the South Paul stance of their spoken word from a mile away. I prefer an unorthodox rendering of my wicked tongue, a fading table sketch of an early Basquiat turned calamity from a violent cadence, a sicko's mind How far left can I take God's third eye? The sea. A portrait. My Latinx cousin smoking meth in the bathroom in the room over her toddler watches a gay cartoon. A landscape. My African friend begging for my hand in marriage for citizenship in a country that he doesn't even want to die in. A still life of my third abortion. No, my fourth. Graffiti of the line of coke I snorted the night before I moved to Oakland. See, I play God always. I'm as godless as I paint myself to be. The black woman's poem reads, I was raped today. 
I'll be raped again tomorrow. America, you wish to consume and wear and f and frame my flesh. America, you were always America in the first place. Let us swallow our blood until the bruising bears resemblance of a broken chain. I'm always at your mercy. They calculate every move, hovering to see if the loneliness gonna take the poetry out of me as if I didn't offer everything in a Florida graveyard in exchange for a simple day. See, <laughs> it's the second time I read that stanza. See, in the last piece, I refuse to bleed on this page, but bleeding is the only thing that seems worthy of your applause. Screaming at the walls again. Mimi, you shouldn't, re you shouldn't write it like that. Mimi, just shut up and do the work. Mimi, play nice, and maybe your 15 minutes will last longer than the nigga ahead of you. See the chip on my shoulder? It got a death wish. The arrogance can't even hide itself. Removed my head from the body and placed it off center, left on canvas. The eyes dilate, lava hot, a whispering window shot up from school. Crack dances into the yellowing of teeth. A cigarette spawns the telltale signs too good for this willowing scene. Vibrating in opposition to the onslaught, reverberation safety, tan safety tantalizes for luxury. I'm almost, almost bourgeois bored. The reality is if I don't hear the slit of the wrist transposed to the paint, then what are we really dying for? to be representational. <laughs> I forget to be here all the time. Grounded just isn't my thing. It's the ones who prance proper holy, who got the viciousness begging to crawl naked completely out their skin. Me, every wall was already taken. Every seedling of doubt was planted into a forest, decaying my wandering thoughts into a new beginning. Let's see how pretty I can make this round look today. And we're back on Full Circle here on 94.1 FM KPFA and KPFA.org. You want to hear more or any or all three of these conversations? The unedited versions are available on kpfaapprentice.org. Be sure to show your support to all these artists by buying their books and supporting their endeavors. In particular, please check out People's Programs. Thank you all for spending the last hour listening to poetry, poets, and revolution on Full Circle, your cultural affairs magazine. Let me give a big shout out to my special guests tonight, Mimi Tempest, Achi Obejas, and Darius Simpson. And to the Full Circle crew, our executive producer, Miss M, Joy Moore, our production consultant, Free Will and Franklin, our technical director, and me, your host, Sentient Shiloh. And thanks for tuning in and turning inward to radically imagine what is possible to witness and welcome these worthwhile and revolutionary words. Stay tuned to KPFA. Up next, La Onda Bajita. Buenas noches. Ooh.